Hello, and welcome to the August edition of the Cinetopia podcast. Um, I'm Amanda, um, and I run Cinetopia, which is a organization that fosters discussion around film and filmmaking in Edinburgh and beyond. Um, I'm here with Jim Ross, uh, our fellow co-producer for uh, the podcast. How are you, Jim? I'm very well. I'm very yeah. well. Or, you know, I, as I feel like I'm saying on every edition of this podcast, as well as well as I can be, given the times we live in. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, how's your film watching? I suppose you haven't been able to go to a cinema yet, so watching at home and stuff? No, or at least I've not been willing to go to a cinema yet. As opposed to, a couple of Odeons randomly opened around Glasgow, I think, so it, it it's fast... Fast approaching when you can. I don't know if I'm particularly happy about the concept of going back yet, but you know, a lot of stuff is still getting released digitally. Um, some quite controversial in the case of the whole Mulan thing, but you know, we'll probably talk about cinema, the, the future of cinema in a moment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's plenty of stuff coming out. So I mean, I'm still seeing plenty, but mm-hmm. you know, I'm kind of longing for the cinema again at this point. But hopefully, when I'm not going to get a respiratory disease by attending. You know? I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> It's, it's it is when we see these films that we're about to talk about that we I I still keep thinking wow you know like if, even if I had a TV <laughs> you know but like <laughs> an I like a really big screen would would make this better but um but yeah you know it, the good old days and po- perhaps in very you know in the near future at some point that we feel comfortable anyway on this um episode it's just the two of us uh a lot of our colleagues are busy writing their dissertations or writing reviews and writing stuff right now so august is always um, a fun month um and usually a busy month for everybody here in edinburgh but uh but but not not with the festival this year so we're going to be reviewing two films that are coming out um online um and perhaps in a theater near you um baby teeth uh directed by shannon murphy and uh pinocchio by matteo garone um so for interviews we've actually been what i announced this last month but we cinetopia doc has been doing a love your local online virtual series where we've highlighted documentaries from around the world that explore the significance of community um, so far, we've had three out of our four events, and it's um, it's really been fascinating, um, really interesting films. Uh, the next one is going to be uh, Daguerreotypes by Agnes Varda, 1976 um, documentary film that's stunning. If you go on our website, um, you can go to the our, our Centobid doc page, and there's a lot of curated content about all these films, including interviews and some of the like live Q&As. But throughout the course of this podcast, we'll be taking a few clips from some of the of the um, the Q&As we've had because they've been so engaging, including the last one we had, which um, was for a Central Airport THF uh, was the documentary. But um, we were joined with um, a, a panel discussion with so is it Carey from Scottish Refugee Council and Alexander Kolta from Document Human Rights Film Festival and Violet Hijazi, who's a freelance interpreter and law student. But we, they were really uh, talking about you know, the significance of documentaries which ethically represent the refugee experience, which this film does very well. So um, you'll be hearing a clip from that and you'll also be hearing a clip from the Q&A we had with Max Plegg and his sound designer Morton on Last of the Mohicans, which is a really terribly lovely mid-length documentary about, uh, you know, a woman, a very interesting woman named Tony who drives a, a, a supermarket truck around and helps people in need. So you'll be hearing those in the rest of this podcast and um, 
looking forward to that. So Cenotopia has a really exciting announcement. Um, we are currently going through a crowdfunding campaign on a new project, which is in collaboration with Double Take Projections called Cinescapes, uh, which is going to be a series of hyper-local film events across Scotland. Um, the landscape of cinema has changed, but we feel like the urge to come together as a community and enjoy cinema remains integral to our collective connection. So this project will celebrate films inspired by various locations across the country while shining the spotlight on much-loved local establishments. We're hoping to bring these films in a hybrid festival format where we're making the project accessible so we can hopefully share them online through our new Eventive platform, but also pick various locations outdoors. Um, so I'm, you know, just calling out our listeners here to look at our uh, cinescapes.co.uk, where it will directly link you to our um, crowdfunder. What's really exciting is that Creative Scotland has chosen us as one of the projects that they will match funding for, but it is a race for, um, you know, for funding. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a little bit of money, if you think this project would be great, then you can enjoy some of these classic Scottish films that we're, we're hoping to show with you. So very excited about that. And then as I mentioned, you know, we've been taking on this um, Cinetopia doc online series and exploring this idea about virtual film festivals. Like uh, for the first couple months of lockdown, we talked to a few larger festivals that were doing this. And now that I've done this a bit, I'm just, um, I'm just amazed how much work it takes to run an online film screening and uh you know i mean you know zooming enough with meetings and this podcast itself it's it's just been it's been really interesting so i think we're going to delve into that in our blog at some point as well and kind of just kind of just discuss what that is but it's really been an interesting thing for me because i've brought in some friends from the us you know i've been able like one of our films we, we were able to show globally so you know people are being able to gauge and engage and in that particular situation that was a you know a document like a whole series that's engaging on this specific genre and so i've really found that to be fascinating but also um i don't know just um just more work than you think and i'm, I'm ready for in-person events again again when it's safe to do so but um but yeah um, but yeah, like I mentioned, uh, we have one more in that group. Uh, so it's uh, Daguerreotypes, uh, that Agnes Varda, 1976 French documentary. Uh, and in the film, she explored the daily lives of small business owners and shopkeepers in her neighborhood. Um, and she lived on, on Rue Daguerre. But the result is a heartfelt and absolutely charming portrait of a small community in the heart of Paris. And we do have uh, one of the experts on Agnes Varda, Rebecca DeRue is joining us live afterwards. So that is on the 23rd of August. That would be this Sunday. And um, yeah, please tune in. Um, we're, the the prices pay as you can from one pounds to eight pounds. One pounds just covers the unlocking fee that we we're charged from the platform. But um, but yeah, it's we just want as many people to join us on these kinds of experiments that we're doing and um, and hope to continue them after this 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 month as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, as, as I just was saying, I feel like the landscape's really changed, but as, at, at some point I'm, you know, I'm finding virtual stuff, not completely enough for me. Um, you know, there's, you know, at the beginning again of lockdown, we talked about drive-ins, um, and it seems like the drive-ins are coming to town. Um, so, uh, Jim, what do you think about all that? I mean, in theory, this is good. <laughs> 
I mean, I've also I've also seen. I mean, the thing is, right? The drive-in cinema. I think everybody's got a romantic idea of the drive-in cinema based upon, ironically enough, American cinema. Yeah. Um. You know, and like drive-ins are kind of baked into American culture a little bit. Yeah. Um, I've seen quite a lot of photos going around Twitter of some very sad British drive-ins. You know, oh, whereas no. We, no, like there's more than a couple of things have gone like semi-viral of you know, like somebody's taking a photo and there's like rain on their windscreen, <laughs> and they've got like a, like a very very poor view of a not particularly large screen that's like a hundred feet away, and like you know, it's not. I don't think I don't think Britain's quite got the drive-in down to be yeah. honest. Um, beyond that, though, I think it, I, it's interesting. I think I think there's a lot of anxiety just purely. In the, there's a lot of experimentation going on, mm-hmm. and I don't think a lot of people are very certain. Like, what will become, if any, the new or the secondary model to go alongside theatrical exhibition, or even if you know that kind of suffers terminal damage, really. But I think the the most interesting one from a from an industry standpoint, not maybe not necessarily the film itself, is um, Mulan on Disney Plus, right? Yeah. So that's now uh, you pay thirty bucks, and if you're already a subscriber, you get access to it. So it's kind of like this pseudo rental, hmm. um, you know. And a lot of people are upset about that, but they're saying, "Oh, well, it's kind of a one-off thing." to see how it goes, but if it goes well, which I think it might actually, that, you know, I mean, if you look at the numbers Disney Plus has been kicking up, you know, stuff about that and rentals have been expensive and, you know, kind of consternation about how exactly cinemas are handling guidelines about, you know, mask wearing and eating food and things like that. It's, it's, I find it very hard to pick apart, like, quite what the end result of all of this is going to be. Um... So, yeah, I, there is a role for... I mean, my hope is that basically in the midst of this that maybe Brits would start to get driving cinemas correct once they have to become, by default, the slightly yeah. more popular option. Um, you know, and I think over time, it's it's about kind of the films you're watching as well. Like, it, like, it, like we've started to cover films on the show, which we're getting through a screener link. Now, in my case, fortunately, I can... I can cast it to my television, right? But my television is only... I mean, I mean, it's a decent size. It's not, like, super huge or anything. But there's something about some of these films, including, like, ones that we already... You know, so Clemency we spoke about in the last show. That is one... I think both of the films we're talking about today would probably come into this category of I would have preferred to have seen them in a theatrical setting for different reasons in the case of each of them. But nevertheless, I do think of lost something by not seeing them that, that that way. Now, I, I watch a lot of films on screener anyway, so I've kind of got used to getting into that mode of viewing. But then, especially when you hit these kind of, like, you know, very big blockbustery things, like, um, you know, Christopher Nolan's Tenet, right, is meant to be coming out shortly after we broadcast this. It's only going to be in theatres, and normally that is the sort of thing where, you know, I would be there opening week trying to see it, but... Right now, I don't, you know, it doesn't really hold the same reward to risk ratio that it normally would. And I do wonder how many how many films are suffering from that. Because there's a lot of films that aren't going into the festival circuit. They're not getting kind of small art house runs, all this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and as I say, there's a lot of models kicking around for how to distribute these things, which are... 
good for some people, aren't good for others. And I think there's a lot of anxiety about how much these things could cost and therefore kind of access to these things in the future because nobody knows which one's going to stick. Yeah. I, you know, I completely agree. I think, um, you know, I, I ideally wanted to check out a drive-in and, and maybe, I, maybe I will. And as an American, I do have that kind of nostalgic, like sort of, you know, hence we, we did the interview early on in the lockdown with the, with the, with the Ocala one that had been around for a while, but it really is, it, it in, in some aspects, it was a fad for a bit, you know, or it was a, you know, I guess it wouldn't was a fad because it was on for decades, but then it really kind of fell out of favor. And um, I, m- my love for nostalgia of, of uh, drive-ins does come from my love of American culture and sort of the history of, of these drive-ins and, you know, in very specific places like Ocala, Florida, or, you know, or, or things like mm-hmm. that. Um, I, I do think it might just be the fad that is the summer. This is the summer of the drive-in and, you know, um, here, and I'm not sure that we'll, by the time everybody gets it sorted, that will yeah, we'll I'm not, be I'm not seeing it. a lot of January drive-ins in Scotland. Well, it's actually really popular. It's been they had a drive-in. Um, Edison did a drive-in for I guess the past few years in December, and really? it's always sold out. No, oh, well, okay. yeah, it was like there the one go. drive-in. <laughs> yeah, who who knew? Um, I didn't know about that, but um, but yeah, I mean the the only problem, and I I do definitely recommend everyone giving it a try if they can and they can afford it. And I mean, because they're quite it's quite expensive, and they how have much a does it, how much does a drive-in cost in the states typically? Oh, not very much at all. Like probably because like I was kind of something, yeah. You know, because I've got what because I don't want to be too down, down on it because I would far rather these things were happening than they weren't, right? But I, they are the the British ones I've seen advertised are quite expensive. Now, I mean, okay, sure, it's a per car thing, but you know, if you're a household of one or you don't have a car or a household of one with a car it's 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 pretty pricey for yeah it's a it's a little bit like bowling here to me like bowling is one of my favorite things to do and then i was shocked how expensive it is but like (laughs) in in america you go and you can you know like you can like a like the sort of little happy hour of bowling and you get like a pitcher of beer or something and you know it's a cheap night out and it's it's really fun and like classy kind of hips well it's kind of hipster you know because it's not classy sort of thing you know whatever ironic um enjoyment of entertainment if you if you have the the resources to attend it in terms of a car and the cost of the ticket by all means go ahead it's more the other side of it for new releases that i worry about um because as i say i think we've been kind of shielded from it on the show almost because we're getting screeners but a lot of these rent a lot of these rentals for new films, they're actually really pretty expensive. Um, expensive. You know, and then you then need to worry about the knock-on effect on ticket prices in cinemas, because if they have to deal with the reduced capacity for a long period of time, then, you know, the economics of it dictates that they're probably going to change their ticket prices. Do you think that's going to go up? I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't rule it out. it, It depends how long... I think it depends how long those social distancing rules have to have to be in there um with the other thing being it it may vary by cinema you know i mean for multiplexes i don't know maybe they won't because they make most of the money off concessions anyway Mm um you know it's kind of hard to i think this is the whole thing i think why a lot of people are anxious about it it's kind of hard to tell right now um combined with the fact that everybody else has their everybody has their own parameters for when they'll feel comfortable going back right because i would say i do right now 
But if the likes of me, who would normally be in the cinema several times a week, doesn't feel comfortable going back, then what? Am I in the majority here? Is it a minority? I don't know. I think there's too many unknowns. I think, and yeah. you know, there's only so many that you know, YouGov surveys and market market research can really tell you. <laughs> Absolutely. I I saw this really funny Twitter. Um, I thought it was funny where Blockbuster, uh, home video store, hadn't uh, you know, been online since 2014 because they had been kicked out of you know existence. Um from uh netflix and then they just they just tweeted checking in and then they're like oh no wait checking out again you know because like it's just a mess um but you know the one thing that really i you know i read this article in the guardian that i i think you know a, a lot of us maybe read where you know right now it's it's really the indie independent cinema and i think that's what you were alluding to that's really getting hurt by this Mm -hmm. and yes i completely agree i don't i think that you know, going forward with moving into cinema space is, you know, is has to take the precautions for everybody involved. And it doesn't seem like, you know, some of the multiplexes are taking those, um, taking those as seriously as I feel, you know, I feel they should, should be, and I wouldn't take a risk. Um, and, and, and ask, and, and the aspect of the fact that like, we're not able to see you know, Netflix is making its own films, you know, so they're just pushing their films. Apple, you know, Apple and Disney Plus, you know, have these like big films that they're making a ton of money. So you're seeing all these certain companies making so much money off of this experience and doing it. And the world, you know, the cinema industry is, you know, like, and specifically the independent cinemas are really, really losing out. And the independent films, you know, are you know, are, are not getting the access and, you know, they're not getting on these streaming platforms that, you know, you pay whatever, 10, 10 pounds a month or something to join anyway. So it's, it's, it's a shame. And I think that's where hopefully that model will, will be able to be shifted a bit, you know, and in terms of like, where is there going to be access for retrospective, interesting films that, were once always on Netflix. Like you can get ever, you could get anything on Netflix like ten years ago before they were making their own material. You know. Yeah. Whereas now, if you look at, it, I, I think, it, I think, I, I can't remember where the hell I saw it again, or, or even maybe you even sent it to me. It was a breakdown of the decades that the films on that were available on Netflix at a given date, because obviously stuff shuffles in and out. Uh, what decade they were from, and the vast, vast majority were from the 2010s like the, the biggest single one it was a huge amount and then as you went back in time it just dropped off a clip like uh, a cliff uh like precipitously um yeah. you know by the time you even got to like the 1970s even which in cinema terms isn't really that long ago no um there was hardly anything available which is which is really quite incredible and then after that i just started to draw you know to got to the point where by the time you're even back to the 1940s where there's like you know quite a lot of you know extremely well known you know landmark cinema there's hardly anything there it was like casablanca and that was it or something you know it, it's just not a yeah and it's I just mean, not it's just not something that they're interested in doing i mean neither was blockbuster i mean like blockbuster was one of those things where like you know the main release like on dvd or like vhs were like was the only thing that you know you go rows and rows and rows but i really miss you know i mean i know i'm nostalgic for the 90s but and but i really miss and i, I didn't live in new york in the 90s but i miss this uh dvd like 
culture of going to the the bazaar, you know, place to pick up the DVD. And there was this place in the East Village called Kim's Video. And when it went away and like every, you know, in the East Village, when every little small business goes away, you kind of as a collect collective community, just mourn the loss of it. But um, when Kim's video went, that was it, you know, because that was one of those places where you walked in and the guy behind the counter was so surly and you'd be like, and you'd hand him your pick, you know, like, and usually I'd be <laughs> yeah. handing the pick because I had to use it. I, like I had to use some was film. It, was this the point where like some sort of silent judgment was passed? Yeah, on what not even <laughs> silent. It was like, okay, you're going to, you're going to, you want that? Or I'd be like, do you have this? You know, da, 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 da. But, you know, they they knew everything about, you know, like, you know, like 1970s or 1980s horror. And then they had these like very weird sort of, you know, amazing rows and rows and rows of like curated, you know, sort of picks. Not in, not in like 1970s, but like, like, you know, in their own way of organizing stuff. And so that's the kind of stuff that like... I mean that was the that was the excitement of the online kind of space, and it is on YouTube and whatnot, but not not for like the the films that you know that that make us excited, and 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 that's that's kind of the thing is like you know we're, I'm hoping that that will this will be kind of a revolution to shift stuff a little bit, and 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 maybe for us to 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 promote those independent art house cinema stuff because it's it is sad that they're the ones that kind of losing yeah combined combined with it i mean the other thing you know I, i'll maybe just finish off at this point but i, I i've been a big I, I i've been quite vocal about the fact that if people don't value the theatrical cinema experience the primary uh culprit in that quite frankly is multiplex cinemas you know they they, they don't project things correctly they don't mask screens um, very little consideration is given to actually experiencing the film that you've gone there to see, right? So it is kind of unfortunate. I find it rather unfortunate that the cinemas that I think are probably going to be the hit the hardest by this are the cinemas that do do that correctly. You know, yeah, I mean, we're talking about cinemas in a lot of cases where you know they still have projectionists in the building and they actually pay attention to that sort of thing and actually try to show the stuff as well as they possibly can it's not it's not just a, a cleaning house for concessions um you know and i can get a little bit animated about that but it's just it's kind of unfortunate to me that like you know with one kind of reducing the the, you know the the magic is perhaps a slightly emotive way of putting it but it, it kind of bugs me that the ones that do it properly are probably the ones that are going to be hit the worst by this. Um, so yeah, it, it, it it's tough, but we'll see how it shakes out. I'm hoping I'm hoping some places come back and they've got a they get a good run at like trying to get themselves back on their feet. Yeah, absolutely. And um, speaking of independent cinema and art house cinema, um, I guess we'll be looking now at our first film that we're going to review um, today. It's uh, Baby Teeth, uh, directed by Shannon Murphy, Australian film. I need to ask you this. I'm trying to put some money together to get a bed in the shelter. I only got 50. 50? That's too much. I can't. And split it. No, no, no. 50 is okay. If I give you 50, you have to do something for me. Is this a style? I was going for rat's tails. You look like a different person. What have you done with my daughter? I killed her. <laughs> oh my god. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? 
You make a habit of befriending girls that are significantly younger than yourself. Oh, my God! Mila's obsessed with that boy. She's a smart girl. Mila? That boy has problems! So do I! What are you looking at? Piss off. Oh, God. I lost my hair. It looks cool. It's like way better than the one that I gave you. Not. <laughs> uh, Jim, you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so uh, Baby Teeth, as you said, directed by Shadon Murphy. It centres on a young girl, Miller, who's got a cancer, a terminal uh, cancer diagnosis, uh, and meets a young man, young man but older than her, as we will probably get into if we uh, go into the plot in any more detail, uh, Moses, uh, on a train platform. And basically, Moses is a slightly uh, troubled young man. He's got some uh, substance issues and he's estranged from his family. But they very quickly form a connection uh, where Miller seems kind of impressed by his fearlessness. And she's also trying to kind of squeeze the last, you know, every last drop of kind of life in the time that she has left. So inevitably, you have a scene where he meets and has dinner with her parents, who are played by Essie Davis, uh, who we've reviewed on the show previously in uh, the True History of the Kelly Gang. And her father is played by Ben Mendelsohn of, you know, many, many big films, uh, but, you know, two very well-known Australian actors. Um, Miller is played by Eliza Scanlon, who I think is probably best known at this point for... Her role in Little Women, uh, Greta Gerwig's recent version, and I think HBO's Sharp Objects, which I've not seen, but seems to be reasonably well regarded. Um, and yeah, it basically, it's kind of broken up into chapters with quirky intertitles, basically. Um, I'm trying to remember what that the first one was, but... I think it was like it didn't feel like a love story at that point. So it's basically it's got all these kind of like little intertitles kind of woven woven through it. And basically it follows that period in Miller's life, her relationship with Moses and their connection, how that develops. But you also get little vignettes around um her mother, who is a former uh concert pianist, I think. But she's a musician basically, but she doesn't really play anymore. And her father, who has this kind of like ongoing flirtation with a younger pregnant neighbor in her 20s and it's kind of like just this portrait of this family going through this process but mainly centered on on miller um i rather enjoyed it um i, I think it's one it, i think you need to be predisposed to this sort of film um what i would say is any cliches that come into people's heads about it being you know kind of like that you know the doomed teenager drama and uh, you know, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of these films. Things like um, the Fault in—is it the Fault in Our Stars or the Fault in Your Stars? I can never remember. Um, but you know that sort of thing, and Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, that sort of thing. Um, it's a little bit different to that. It's a—it's a far quirkier. I think it made its debut at Sundance, and I think anybody would probably be able to tell that it's a very—it's one of these kind of like, you know, very indie Sundancey feeling films. Um, but I, I I liked it a lot. I think the I think the the look of it is very good. I think the use of color is very good. Um, albeit it has a scene in the nightclub, uh, which seems to be the the go to thing in independent cinema these days. If you want to show off use of color and cinematography, is insert a nightclub scene. But 
you know, it's, it's, it's well done. I think the main strength of it is the acting performances. I think Eliza Scanlon is very good as Miller. And Moses is particularly well played by uh, Toby Wallace. Uh, I'm a big fan of Ben Mendelsohn uh, already, uh, and I think he does excellent work here. Same with S.E. Davis. So um, I liked it. I don't think it's a perfect film, but yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed it. Why did you, how did you get on with it? Yeah, I, I really liked it. I think, um, again, I, 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 I start with a visual kind of perspective on stuff, and I just thought this film was really stunning. I really love, um, it was, it's like, it's, it was funny that you mentioned the intertitles, because I, I don't love intertitles all the time. I didn't like the favorites. While that was one of my favorite films, um, you know, last year, I don't, I don't, I didn't like the favorites intertitles, and I didn't like they were laid out or whatever, but um but the titles in this film especially the credits i think are just like quite pretty and um and it really just kind of matched this um almost a uh, subdued uh like art direction and i mean the the house that they live in the family lives in is just gorgeous kind of a mid-century modern you know space and it and it's um and it's it's like so beautiful and and like and and inviting to be in and all these shots are very that way but yet the story as you say is so is so sad and um and you know and you know quite emotional you always pick the really sad ones but um I, you know I, I cried a lot <laughs> again I didn't totally buy the subtitles but I like I liked them popping in and out I thought that was quirky and I think that that was something I I appreciated I thought the the acting was quite great and uh um you know so so I I it did also remind me a little bit of like with the lighting striking red moments and blue moments and stuff kind of like how we talked about with uh, Emma um earlier but then it was a really captivating film i enjoyed it a lot i think it's funny the the intertitles i've seen i've seen a couple of comments about them not being particularly effective. I actually i I'm, i actually kind of disagree with that. I think i think they were actually really pretty pretty useful for the way that story was told you know because it, it follows things for like fairly linearly um reasonably apart from without kind of getting into exactly what happens apart from right at the end yeah but the thing is i actually kind of enjoyed the intertitles because it gave this sense of it being kind of little vignettes of this story and the way the lives that these people were leading in kind of the orbit of Milla and her uh, and her diagnosis, and I kind of enjoyed that because I, I sometimes feel when you get these stories that follow somebody, follow somebody who is doomed, shall we say, um, it feels like a very self-contained story, but artificially so. Now this one to me didn't feel that way. It kind of felt, to my mind, a little bit more genuine because it was more structured as if it was significant moments now i think if you take a step back and look at it it is pretty much a linear story but the way it was presented it was a little bit more like significant moments in this period of all of those characters lives and i i found that a more i personally found that a more engaging way to actually look at that story rather than kind of a an artificial beginning middle and end um So, to my mind, I actually think they worked quite well. I do think they added added to it, which kind of runs counter to some comments I've seen about it. So, in that respect, I think the main strengths are the performances and the look of the film. 
but the way that that story has been told, I thought, I think is is quite effective. It, it's occasionally rather what you expect from that pitch of the story, let's say. But I actually think the way it was told was actually quite quite effective, and I think it gave it a little bit more um, more uniqueness. If that's not a, an oxymoron, um, it made it a little bit different in a good way, rather than just kind of being quirky i actually think it really quite added something yeah like i said it didn't bother me too much um they they were sometimes random i felt but also but i i liked the look of it i mean at the same time i i think like you said you know there there could be a general way of these sort of stories of you know a, a younger person who has this terminally ill you know situation in their life um but I thought it would really loved the fact that it was a character driven story mm. and that every character was not ever perfect or even too bad. You know, there's no villains per se in, in the, you know, but everyone, it was about relationships, you know, being made and, you know, and kind of forcing relationships to happen as well you know just just given the situation and mm. um and i i thought that was really like again not to give too much away but i thought it was really effective that every single main character kind of built a relationship you know like a positive and a negative relationship yeah. you know and and, they, and the, those evolved over time and um so it, it it was linear but it had it had much more energy on that kind of on those kinds of dialogue moments with that and it worked really really well and um by the end you just you felt for everybody you know and you you know despite some of the not so nice things that maybe the father did you know to the family or what you know or whatnot you know you you knew he was he was there to help as well so um yeah i don't think it, yeah i think no i mean i don't i don't think anybody comes out of that as uh Absolutely terribly. I think it. I think basically it comes out as there maybe people have made bad decisions. Some of those characters, but I, it, it's that kind of standoffish lack of judgment, which I think allows those characters to breathe within this this script. Um, yeah. The judgment. So, so yeah, no. I think right. it, it could easily be a bit. Self, it, it could easily have slipped into being self consciously a little quirky. Uh, a little twee and sentimental, but it, it, it absolutely, it absolutely does not. It's got a, it's got a bit of a, you know, it's a, it's an emotional film, particularly towards the end, and it has a fondness for its characters. But there is a hard bitten edge to it, um, and I think that worked for me with this sort of story. Yeah. Now I'm wondering what Mark thinks about it because when we agree on a film, I always feel like Mark disagrees. You know. Yeah, I, I, I feel like Mark would have to get. Yeah, to I'll, I'll have to disagree here. <laughs> um but yeah no so anyway uh baby teeth it's uh jim where where can we find this film right now uh it's a good question i think it's in theaters i don't know if it's available online um as we broadcast i believe it will have just come out uh over the weekend um but yes if you are lucky enough and comfortable enough to be in a theater you will be definitely be able to go see it um i'm pretty sure it will be available online somewhere or quite soon um if it is we'll stick it in the description but i'm pretty sure you will definitely be able to catch it in theaters yeah so we'll send you a link um if if there is one so i guess it's not it's not by curzon then i take it uh no it's picturehouse picturehouse entertainment oh, right, okay. okay well that makes sense okay. or that's who the uk destroyed i think it's ifc films in the state right. So the next film we're going to review is Pinocchio by Matteo Garone. Um, 
known famously for his film uh, Gomorra, uh, but uh, this is a, a a different take on the story. Pinocchio, um, an Italian version. Um, Jim, you want to kind of give a little bit of a synopsis on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, basically, it's a it's a live action Italian language version of Pinocchio. Um, you know, <laughs> I think I think most people will probably be aware of the you know the broad strokes of the the Pinocchio story. Uh, by now, you know, Geppetto carves himself a a wooden puppet out of uh, some en- enchanted wood, I suppose is maybe the way you describe it. Uh, it comes to life, he names it his son Pinocchio, and Pinocchio dreams of being a real boy. And, you know, I think the, 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 the enduring the enduring pop cultural image of Pinocchio, I think, is, you know, the, the nose that grows when he lies. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's probably what most people would remember from the Disney uh, adaptation of it um i think this one th- this one is quite interesting in that i i never saw the the other version that roberto benigni directed and starred in as pinocchio which seemed to which doesn't seem to have particularly good good reviews or a good reputation i've never seen it um but this one it seems to i have never read uh the carlo collodi um is it a novel, a collection of short stories? But The Adventures Story. of Pinocchio, basically. Um, I've never read it. I get the feeling this maybe has a slightly slightly more reverence for that source material, I think, probably because of the fact that it's in the Italian language. There's also the fact that uh, I believe the, the original story is set in, uh, in Tuscany, and you can even spot in this film the the reverence that down to even the accents of some of the characters if you listen to it they'll say sort of like um amici instead of amici and that's kind of a feature of 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 tuscan accents um so i think that's probably the main difference with this it's a live action version of course uh, and we'll get into the look of it shortly but yes it is the classic pinocchio story but italian language kind of with a reverence for the setting of the original story and in this occasion, Roberto Benigni is playing Geppetto as opposed to Pinocchio. Pinocchio is played uh, by a much younger actor who, once again, I've scrolled away now, Federico Iolapi. Um, and yeah, I, 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 in summary, I rather enjoyed it. But Amanda, what did you make of it? Well, I'm going to have to say that um, my first memory of watching a film was in a hospital <laughs> like when I had like I had a I was young very young first grade and and uh and I had to watch all the Disney movies like you know in a hospital for a week um and uh Pinocchio scared me to death the Disney version and especially when the young boys turn into the donkeys like I still have nightmares from that um so I've not seen that film since I don't know six years old um <laughs> not interested um, but so I don't, again, equally don't have as strong of a connection to the story, um, and, and, and whatnot. Um, but it definitely from watching it was like, oh, this is a picaresque, you know, odyssey of, um, you know, and, and I, and the, and the donkey scene does come back and it's, it's, it's a little, maybe it's just my age, but it's, it's, little... got, it's got proper, I, I don't know, I, that to me had proper American werewolf in London vibes yeah, to it, quite well, frankly. I, I didn't see that at six years old, but I, but I, just the idea of that was, was so frightening. Um, but it, this, this was interesting because like right when they're turning into a donkey and then they cut away and then it's like, 
the real donkeys are there. <laughs> so, I don't. It wasn't scary. It was just. It wasn't maybe as well effectively done in that way. But I would say what I found really fascinating about this because um, I've I've been thinking a lot about uh, the the Sylvain Chaumet animations uh, like uh, Triplets of Belleville and um, Lusionist and stuff, which are a take on a classic Disney, you know, cell animation, but done in kind of a European or French and, and sort of unique way that's um, more exaggerated or sort of, you know, like interesting. Um, this is a really funny time for this to come out because Disney is trying all these live action versions of their films and then what they've done is just completely like remove disney from from the story in my in my in my feeling you know and oh, so yeah. it's yeah. so this like live action like in the root of of um of uh italy and tuscany like you said where it's it, so so the the beauty of that kind of journey through italy is is quite lovely and then this I wouldn't say dark, but it's it's in incredibly kind of stylized shooting, you know, the like our colorize colorizing of the film um makes you kind of think in my head it makes me think of those animations that Sylvain Chama did, um, but also the you know, like uh City of Lost Children or kind of, you know, that sort of feeling too. So so it's 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 really, really interesting in terms of a film to watch in in like the world it takes you in and um you know i i, I don't know if you know because it's perhaps for kids as well I, you know i'm not sure it like you know this odyssey journey of like you know the fish and the donkey and and the kind of stuff isn't isn't necessarily like my kind of film per se but i i was really interested and intrigued by it from from all of those aspects yeah, I, the the thing that I found interesting with, and and this is where I think, um, you know, because you, you you say Pinocchio and people think Disney, right? That that, that like that's that's the enduring image. I think I think certainly here in the UK and and in the states at least anyway. It may be it may be different in Italy, but the thing that I found really fascinating about the look of the film is kind of just this kind of it's this it's this strange sort of like old school fairy tale sort of look to it whereas that just that tinge of the grotesque about it yeah. you know it's you know you know so you know snail people and rabbit people and you know guys who are meant to be playing foxes and cats like it's got that look to it where it just looks a little bit off key um in a good way that's not that's not a criticism it's more that it, it does this kind of like fantasy realist type look to it that I think is a really interesting thing to watch. In some ways it actually reminds me a little bit of um it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of almost kind of like a blend of like Terry Gilliam type stuff and yeah. even to an extent like if you if you can imagine like Tim Burton making something that wasn't, you know, gothic tinge, right? Because I'm not a particularly big Tim Burton fan, but it's got that very unique look to it it doesn't look like it's fantasy it doesn't look like it's real it's kind of somewhere in between and it's a very interesting thing to look at and in terms of attention to detail in the film it even comes down to even kind of the sound design like honestly honestly the the, the wood noises that pinocchio makes as he's walking around i thought were absolutely fantastic it's just it's down to that that sort of level of detail um 
and I think it's an extremely well-made film. I think it's an extremely good-looking film as well. I think you you've mentioned it there in terms of um, you know the the look of it in terms of the colors, but I think just the the variety of landscapes that you go through here. You know, we have the inside of well, I think it was a whale in the original story of the poem. It's a, it's a shark here, but you know, a giant sea creature basically. The inside of that, the ocean, these kind of like wonderful looking kind of Italian fields, small Tuscan villages, um, and it does good humour as well. Like the opening of the film is uh, Roberto Benigni's um, Geppetto basically desperately trying to convince this innkeeper that all his furniture is broken so he can be paid to fix it. <laughs> and like the delivery is really, really excellent. It's a just, it's a very... I always kind of roll my eyes a bit when people describe a film as charming, but I did I did find this a very charming film. I think the performances are all really great, and there's just lovely attention to detail in the way the film looks. You know, it's like like for a lot of the start of the film, it's a very blue, like indoors, it's kind of a very bluish grey palette, mm-hmm. and kind of even just the sort of like the dull red of the costume that Geppetto makes for Pinocchio stands out like wonderfully against it, and just kind of it separates him both thematically from everything around him, but visually as well. It's just it's little things like that. I think it does an extremely an extremely good job of it, and I I rather liked the film. Um, I, the, my only criticism I think of it would be. And maybe this comes from a reverence for the source material. It felt quite long to me. Like it felt, it felt like an epic. Um, you know, and I don't want to make it sound like it was like way, way too long. But it's more. I think you do feel the length after a little bit. Um, it's not a big deal, and I think it 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 ends quite sweetly as you would expect. So you know, you you kind of forgive it. That would probably be my only real criticism of it. But apart from that, I found it I found it really charming. I found it really engaging, and I think it looked fantastic as well, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I, that I think that's maybe what I said. You know, like because it's kind of this Odyssey journey, and you know, uh, you know, after a while, just as not being a, a a kid watching it, and you know, being really excited about you know being swallowed up, you know, the our main character is being swallowed up by a whale. Um, you know, it does lose my interest sometimes in that case. And, and I think that maybe it's just kind of the structure of, of like you said, the source material. Um, but yeah, charming is a great word for that. And also because like Roberto Benigni and I, like I, you know, I just don't like life is beautiful. And that's kind of how Up and Am- down. <laughs> Americans were introduced by him. Jim, I've, I've certainly seen films that he's done, um, Italian films that... Um, are much better and it's kind of I appreciate the slapstick kind of comedian you know I'm a huge fan of like Jacques Tati and stuff so I realize what his role is and you know in in Italian cinema but um I do think in this case he his performance was charming and lovely and uh and captivating and and was a very you know as was the young boy um who who played uh who played Pinocchio, but also this, I, again, back to this idea of like, when you were talking about, you know, how it looked and how it felt like a fairy tale, but also kind of almost feels theatrical. And I think that's why I still keep going back to this idea of like taking away this like CGI, like the first thing you're going to think of is, oh, it's going to be the CGI thing that we're, you know, like that Disney is going to recreate this, the idea, but it's actually just taking all that stuff away. And it's focusing on the craft of, 
um, makeup artists and costume design and art direction and and these things that have been classic things of of you know epic films like this but also of theater and so there's there's just a it just feels like a little bit more of a history of art and craft that's been made just put attention into this film versus the beautiful work that CGI were, you know, like I love visual effects and I think there that has its own place, but I think this is why we found that charming perhaps. Or yeah, I, no, no, I, I, I'd agree with that. There is a sense of, there is a sense of weight and presence to everything going on in this film. I mean, I mean, there are, there are little bits of CGI here and there, but they're, they're very, you know, they're very sparing. And I think that the main thing to note just for, you know, somebody's not particularly aware of this version. As far as I'm aware, there is no CGI for Pinocchio. That is all. That is all physical makeup yeah, effects that they, they, they're they're doing for that. So it's a case of it's not just a it's not just a an attempt to make something look for real. There is kind of like real real craft has gone into this film, and I think more importantly, because occasionally I think you know I, I can do this as well. the The idea of things doing doing things physically rather than with CGI can get. Uh, fetishized mm-hmm. a bit when it should be in serve of the story but the key thing here is is in serve of the story it makes everything feel very real and grounded and it's very clearly the team behind this were very capable of creating this world with that being the primary mechanism for them doing so and i think it really adds something to the look of the film and then by extension the story so it has a real presence to it and that is one of the key things that i think makes this so such a charming and engaging film to actually watch. Yeah. Um, and I do think it's gotten a lot of, um, won a lot of awards and, you know, for, for all of those, those art, those art, those elements of the film for sure. So I think it's, it's definitely worth a watch and it's also a film maybe for everyone <laughs> if they have attention spans so give it a, give it a whirl. And um, we'll, we'll also send you a link to at least how, how you can try to watch it online. If, 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 if it's available online. I think this one will be available Good. available online. But once again, I think there are there are cinemas showing it as well if you if you feel so inclined. Well, I just um, at this point people and is it is it Nolan who is like it will not go online? Is that what you, is that what you're saying with Tenet, the that film? I do, I find it hard to pick it apart. I, I mean that would that will not go online whether it's because for Nolan driving it or Warner Brothers. Is it people who are now requiring it to be in the cinema kind of bother me because then you're losing out on this you know it bugs me as well but you know um okay we've but yeah no, no no so i think that this but also this one this one I, you'll be able to find online somewhere because it, it technically i think it came out towards the end of last year in italy so right. it's one that it's only just coming out in the uk now but it is a film that's been kicking around on I think it got festival screenings as well, but it's been kicking around for at least you know seven or eight months. I think so. You'll be able to find it online somewhere, or or in theaters near you. Yeah. Well, um, as as some of you know, I love a Italian cinema night, so you know maybe I'll keep it in the back of my you know planning for the future. Uh, who knows? Um, but yes, uh, Pinocchio. Um, watch it. Uh, where where and when you can. Okay, now is the time when we're going to be sharing a few segments from some of our online discussions that we've been having with our Cinetopia Doc Love Your Local series. 
um, including filmmakers and panelists who are experts on the subjects that um, the films uh, portray and and all around the idea of community. Uh, so the first one is um, we did a screening a couple weeks ago of Last of the Mohicans, which was a film from the Netherlands, uh, directed by Max Plegg. And it's a um, it's a mid-length film about uh, a, it's a heartwarming portrayal about a woman named Tony who's determined to you know keep her business alive but um, help those in need at the same time. It's it's really really quite a lovely film, and so if and when you can find it online, we highly recommend it. But oh, we invited uh, Max Plegg and the sound designer of the film, Morton Dumbrogard. Uh, to have a discussion, and the discussion was run by one of the co-curators of the project, uh, Maya Benuelos Marco. So here's a few moments from that. Welcome everyone to the q and I'm here with director Max Fluch and the sound designer of the film, Morten Brogard. And uh, the first question is, can you guys tell me a bit about how you met, if it was um, during your studies or if it was, mm. um, out of friendship, if you can tell me a bit more about that, how, how the collaboration started. Yes, well, um, Morten and I, we met at the uh, University of the Arts in Utrecht. We were both studying and, and he was studying sound design, um, which is, I think, a really small study at uh, HKU, right? Yeah. Uh, in the end, I was the same one, one student, the last one. <laughs> the last one. Yeah. yeah, so so we met a couple of years before making this film. Um, and I remember um, I, I saw a movie that Max made and I hadn't met him before. So, but after I saw that movie, I went directly to him and I was a little bit aggressive. I said, I want to do the sound for your next film. And well, uh, I, so what was the, what was the, what what struck you about that film that you wanted to collaborate with Max? The humor, the humor was just just my thing. It uh, it was it was humorous but serious, and I think that was that was perfect for me. So mm. yeah, I I liked everything about it. So uh, yeah, more of that, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we met at school, and then uh, you know we we started working on this film. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so. Yeah, as far as I know, this is your graduation film. Um, yes. So how do you, can you, can you tell us a bit more about how this project start and how did you hear about uh, Tony or Tonek's story? What, how, how did you learn about her story? Uh, yes, well, for my graduation, I was looking for subjects which may be interesting for a film. Um, and I decided to look into the uh, specific kind of uh, van she drives. So it's like, there used to be a lot more uh, over here, like the, the driving supermarket, but there are only a few left. Okay. And I was looking uh, on Facebook and uh, I saw Tony's Facebook page in which she had posted a really angry letter to the municipality because well, there were some uh, disputes between them and she had decided to put it on Facebook, all caps lock. So uh, that's really struck me as uh, that there could be a, a story more than just the driving supermarket mm -hmm. in her uh, supermarket. So that's, that's why I decided to call her. Mm -hmm. And you really managed in 15 minutes to tell a lot about not just 
you know, her goings, but a lot about um, the city itself and about, yeah, the, the kind of shopping we do these days. So I didn't know that this was something, was it something that you actually, um, you know, before you'd, you'd go to shop in this kind of uh, driving supermarket? Yeah, 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 okay. exactly, yeah. All right. Yeah, they used to be everywhere. There, there were like uh, thousands of them all throughout uh, uh, the country. Mm -hmm. But you know, um, I think in the in the seventies there were the most of them, and then it just started to decline gradually as the larger supermarkets opened and people were less at home. You know, and people started working more, mm -hmm. uh, so that's when these started to disappear. So, yeah, I, I really there's a moment in the film that you have a scene with um, just close-ups of you know hands and just. Uh, with career bags and trolleys, and you can see people entering and exiting this big chain, that supermarket. And mm -hmm. I, I really like that bit because it's very, it just comes to in a time in the film where, where you can really see that in opposition with, with Tony's supermarket, which is all about, um, you know, personal connections. You see the people, she knows the, the people's names and, and they know her and, and, um, I really like that moment, and I think it's it's quite a political scene as well because everyone can connect to this everywhere in the world. We see more of these big chain supermarkets and kind of local grocery shops, and and um, even you know outdoors markets are disappearing. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, one of my questions was really like if you could. Um, Tell us a bit more about about if this was already like a topic that interests you, um, you know, as a person, as a documentary. If it was something that interests you to to kind of explore how we our relationship as 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 customers is is changing and is becoming more impersonal. I don't know about the Netherlands, mm -hmm. for example, in the UK, it's all about yeah, yeah. Um, you know self service checkouts. It's kind of almost even impossible to have, you know. Um, a relationship with someone in the shop is is it's becoming really the norm, you know. And now yeah. with the pandemic, it's all about online shopping, you know. So um, yeah, just just wondering uh, if this was already a topic that interests you, and also um, something that I was thinking when I was watching the film was if 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 Tony is is specifically driving in an area of Tilburg that is kind of deprived and there's no much, uh, no many grocery shops around because I don't know about in the Netherlands, but in the UK it happens that um, in some deprived areas, there's really no fresh produce. You can't really see like a shop with vegetables or fruits. So I was wondering if it's the same situation in the Netherlands or specifically in Tilburg. So if you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's you're exactly right because this this shopping in these big chains it's becoming more anonymous, uh, and also I think that the um, many things are becoming more more like that. So a, a bigger scale, um, less uh, close interaction with each other, and the thing with uh, Tony's van is that she actually knows her customers, so she also knows their needs. You know, when, when she starts driving through these neighborhoods uh, where there, indeed there aren't a lot of um, uh, stores or uh, grocery stores, she knows already that if a customer doesn't show up on Wednesday, something must be wrong. So she, you know, she will try to reach the customer. Also, she's actually trying to uh, keep tabs on the diet of uh, certain customers. 
where she will say, you know, you shouldn't eat too much fat or sugar. So, uh, yeah, I think this is this is the uh, uh, the positive thing about these small shops uh, and Tony's shop in particular. Also, is that, she is she's yeah. looking for people who don't who can't go to the shop at all. She is helping people yeah. who can't get out of their houses and and who who yeah don't want to go to these supermarkets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really that's a big point. She's yeah. actually helping this woman out of her house, walking to the to the shop. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's really nice the the portrait of her because you you really see her as a very sweet person, caring that she deeply cares about about these people, but also like she gets fed up with these other customers that for sixteen times. So she's very humane, and and you really manage to portray her as as someone real because sometimes with this type of documentaries you see just like someone that is too perfect, you know, and you're like, hmm, something dodgy here. But you really show her as like, yeah, she's she's even very honest saying like, if I knew how many deaths I, I would have, I would probably not have started this. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. really accomplishing in, in that way as a, as a portrait of, of a person. Um, um, no. just, just one more question about, um, about the sound design since we have the sound designer here and and how do you how do you get interested in this in this story uh in particular was it something also the subject matter that interests you or or working in documentary mm. i don't know if you have worked in documentary before no this was uh my first documentary work and i i just knew i wanted to work with Marx. that was the first thing but when I saw it, I fell in love with it as well. And I think we worked quite a lot, Marx. We we talked about the sound and how we can mm, turn Tilburg into this big commercial city, which oh, yeah. maybe yeah. it's it's like. And then the opposite is Tony's small wagon and these 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 outside neighborhoods, these forgotten streets outside of Tilburg, that contrast was really nice to make, I think. And, and, and yeah, we, we talked a lot, Max and I, on, on, on finding, looking for these contrasts and trying to make them in sound. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we went there, we recorded the whole city <laughs> and mm-hmm. surround. That was a nice day. <laughs> it's really good. We yeah, were yeah. just having a conversation last, last Sunday about sound as well, because it's a film about trains passing the one we screened last last Sunday. And it's something that maybe audiences uh, take for granted, but sound in a film mm-hmm. is so important. And you can really notice a bad sound design, but a good sound design is, you you, you, you barely notice it. So it's, it's really yeah. good because it really complements the, the story and there's not an overload of dialogue. There's all of the atmospheric sounds, the really lovely soundtrack that I think we already have a question from the audience about the soundtrack. And um, and, 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 and Tony's uh, dialogues and, and, and her story and, and, and how her testimony no, comes at the very end. I think that's very important. I wanted to ask you, Max, about that as mm-hmm. well. How, if that was something you had in mind in terms of the narrative, if, if you wanted to kind of um, tell audiences at the very end, because we, we learn at the beginning that she's been homeless, she's been yeah. kind of socially excluded, but we don't know about her 
um, childhood uh, traumas and her abuse mm -hmm. and how she gets out of that. And I really, I really love seeing that at the very end and how it complements her whole story. So yeah, if, if, if you can tell us a bit about maybe the, the narration of the film and the editing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I doubted a lot uh, about what I should do with, with that interview, you know, because uh, well, I made a couple of versions and in one version it was kind of woven throughout the film. So it was split up into different segments and then pasted uh, throughout the film. Uh, but you know i i also felt that i wanted the story because it tells a lot about tony and about how her character was was uh, built in my opinion at least um uh, but so for me it was important to have it in the film but when it's earlier in the film she becomes more like well i, I wouldn't say a victim but but more more helpless uh, but when you see all the other stuff she does first, you kind of earn uh, a respect for her. And I felt that that was very important, that she, she wasn't um, defenseless. Uh, she was actually very powerful. Um, so I, I wanted to make that abundantly clear uh, before uh, the whole childhood story. And, I, I you know, it's, it's not necessarily a, a victim story, but it's also a, a power powerful story I think that well, mm -hmm. yeah the, those were my I considerations yeah in terms related to that sorry I'm mm -hmm. just mixing all of my questions but I think it's kind of tying with what you're saying because okay. the title of the film really struck me last of the Mohicans but then yeah. um watching it for a second time it kind of really makes sense the title but maybe you want to tell a bit more about why you decided a title and yeah. Yeah, yeah. With audiences. yeah I'm, I'm not really good at, at coming up with titles but I you know so I, I had like a million titles for this thing and I, I, I you know it's also when you when you have the the whole school year you become exhausted at the end so I, I just thought well the last thing I need to do is, is make a title mm -hmm. so th there was this and in Dutch it's actually Laatste uh, der Mohicanen and this is a phrase which is often used to refer to these kinds of uh, fans so in in that way it would it would make sense and also because she is uh, the last of her kind uh, because these fans are disappearing and the the last one who believes in something um, I, I think you know she believes in uh, the sense of community and uh, looking out for each other and and caring for each other which is well it's it's maybe still present in the society but it's it's maybe uh, getting more to the uh, background you know this thought of, of um, uh, knowing your neighbors so she uh, i thought she was maybe the last to believe in in such a ideal <laughs> yeah so thank you so much for your time and um yeah it's, it's been really a pleasure to get to know a bit more of the details of, of the film and thank you so much and um Okay, so the next uh, clip that we are going to showcase um, this week is from last week's film um, online screening of Central Airport THF, uh, which is about Berlin's historic defunct Tempelhof Airport that today is Germany's largest emergency shelter for asylum seekers. Um, and um, we were then followed, Amaya 
had then followed uh, with a panel discussion with Soyzik Carey from the Scottish Refugee Council, Alexander Kolta from Document Human Rights Film Festival, and Violet Hijazi, a freelance interpreter, to explore the significance of documentaries which ethically represent the refugee experience and give voice to people seeking refugee protection. So um, here's a few moments from that, but um, if you want to hear more, you can also go to our website, Cinetopia Show uh, slash Doc Club, and um, there will be a link to the full discussion as well. Good evening, and thank you for joining for this panel discussion. I'm very excited to introduce this wonderful panel. Um, we got Swazi Kerry who works as Arts and Cultural Development Officer for the Scottish Refugee Council for about three years. Swazik advocates for the cultural care and rights of refugees and asylum seekers, where they have the right for creative expression, the right to participate in cultural life, and the right to earn a living from artistic and cultural pursuits in society. And Swazik is also a practicing designer maker based in Glasgow. We also have Alexandra Kolta, who's been working as a festival producer for the Human, Document Human Rights Film Festival since 2019, after being part of the programming team and organizing the annual Critical Forum since 2016. She's also working on distribution and festivals and strategy at the Scottish Documentary Institute and coordinates Gramnet film series, programming themes on migration and the refugee experience. She recently completed a PhD at the University of Glasgow and St Andrews, focusing on politics and programming practices at human rights wing festivals. And finally, we got Violet Hejatsi, who's originally from Syria and has been through the asylum process herself. Um, wanting to help other refugees, she began volunteering with the British Red Cross as an interpreter caseworker, as well as proceeding with her education. Two years after, she officially became a freelance interpreter and has been able to offer her services and support refugees through working with the Scottish Refugee Council as well as other bodies. She is now studying law in preparation to become a solicitor. So firstly, very generally, I wanted to ask um, each of you about um, representation of refugees' experiences on the screens. Is it right now is such a hot topic in the, um, in the film sector. Um, it's all about representation and it's become a bit of like a difficult game, but it's still very interesting. And um, I just wonder uh, refugees where they fall in this because they kind of become a bit um, forgotten, I think, in this conversation. Um, and this is a very interesting film, I believe, to talk about representation of refugees or asylum seekers on the screen. So, um, yeah, I wanted to ask you what you think about uh, the film in those terms. And also what we talk about by mainly focusing on one character in Ibrahim, what you think about the representation. So if, if um, whoever wants to start first, um, I may start. So um, basically, I I can't say I enjoyed watching that documentary or the film because um, I mean it was just very real. It was just very um, eye-opening and insightful. Um, I could relate to some things, uh, you know, being a refugee myself. But the film itself or the documentary was. Um, I would say very straightforward in presenting the uh, struggle or the experience Ibrahim is going through and 
we can say like and we can sort of see in many many of the scenes there is a, a general feeling of discomfort there is a general feeling of uncertainty and of just being um or having to be patient and just wait and hope for the best i think in terms of representing the um, um matter of refugees the idea of being a refugee the documentary was successful it did show some very sensitive points some like very emotional points but i think the audience need to see that and they need to be able to um understand what main what the main characters are going through even if that was not very um pleasant to watch or not very happy to watch mm -hmm. yeah that's that's really that's really like a great summary i i totally agree with what you said and um I, I think it's also very interesting that it's not like a complete positive as well. Like he's not so happy to be in Germany, but obviously he wants to to get the refugee status. So I, I like that because sometimes in other films, I believe they kind of show like like a complete um, wanting and 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 this positive um, outlook of of life in the new country. And I think this is a really nice contrast um, through the figure of Ibrahim. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the others think about the film. Yeah, I can. Oh, sorry, uh, Alexandra. Can, uh, yeah, just start by saying that I found this really important and interesting film after watching, I think, throughout four plus five years of watching films on these topics, especially after uh, 2015 when the so-called uh, refugee crisis in Europe really sparked an interest in filmmaking and approaching these topics. Um, and it's becoming very difficult as a programmer, as a festival to really understand, you know, to really make a decision on what films, when all of them seem very urgent and very important, what films are the most kind of authentic or capture the kind of lived experience of, of refugees and asylum seekers. So I thought, I found this film really interesting because of of that, because it really seems to um, capture this very authentic experience and give a voice to um, people who are going through the process, um, because I think that's really important, especially in documentary film, who has a voice and who gets to speak on these issues. Um, it's a really nice cat over there. Well, we have lots of cats in this uh, panel. <laughs> Maybe you want to introduce them as well. <laughs> That's my cat, Oria. She's called Oria. <laughs> nice to meet you, Oria. Sorry about that. No, it's great. It's the best thing about all of these Zoom conversations. You always get a cat or a dog. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. And another thing uh, that I, I thought was interesting about this film was the relationship um in like the city itself and especially in you know us as audience members or people in kind of western europe watching these films it sometimes feel, feels like an issue that is far away you know when we see uh people in the journey on the you know um or coming from war-torn countries and things like that that seems to be something far away and removed but in this film and in other films that I quite like about these uh, topics is that 
you know, when we see this happening in our city and that if it's close to us, then perhaps we can actually do more and react um, much um, quicker in that sense. So uh, that's what I liked about this film, that it showed these kind of two parallel worlds um, that very rarely mix or communicate. You have the park with all its history and the people just going there to enjoy their time and do sports outside. But then you have this other world inside the actual building um, that is, it, it was very interesting to see how little they actually interact. But you know, how we as an audience, as part of the audience who are watching this film, uh, perhaps we can relate to what is happening, you know, in our city and how we can uh, perhaps interact more or lead to a better kind of um, communication and listening and acting. Um, yeah, so I think these are some of my initial thoughts on the film. Um, great, thank you. That's great. And uh, you, Swaisik, what do you, I think you, you've been to the airport yourself. Yeah, um, not actually inside the airport, but in the surrounding mm -hmm. um, park space a whole number of years ago. So actually pre-2015, pre the so-called refugee crisis. Um, so I'm not sure how it was being used at the time. I don't think it was being. No, yeah, it was from 2015 that became a refugee shelter. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I mean that. I, you know, I have really good, um, really kind of vivid memories of of that outdoor space and how it was being used by um, by the city. And um, I think in terms of the film, um, I would agree it was really strong in terms of um, how much focus there was on Abraham's experience and other people who were um, at that time accommodated there. You know, both a mixture of the reality and very sensitive points, but also, you know, points of quite day-to-day -day social interaction that you don't normally see in terms of depictions of, of refugees and asylum seekers. It can be quite focused on the the trauma and the the journey and um, and those kind of things. I think that I suppose for me, um, I see there's there's the documentary as the the kind of the product, the film product, and what you what we see as the audience. There's also the process, which is so important. And I suppose that's something that I couldn't speak to in terms of what that was that what that process was like in terms of work of in terms of the filmmaker and team working with people accommodated in the airport. And that's something that's quite important and essential for me. Um, when it comes to working with with people in these extremely vulnerable positions, um, you see the depictions, but you don't see the prior relationship or how that was how that was built. It it seemed like there was quite a a strong focus um, on Ibrahim and his his experiences and how he wanted to speak about them, mm -hmm. which which I thought was was well done. Um, but yeah, really kind of, really kind of striking 
the sort of contrast, you know, of this of this incredibly um, massive symbol of the Nazi regime, and then being repurposed as this um, as this waiting space, kind of detention space for asylum seekers. And actually, there's so much in that that the filmmaker could have gone into, which is really like hot kind of topic. I can imagine, um, documentary-wise, and, and they really sort of stayed with the people, which, which is quite telling. Yeah, I think it's, it's super interesting, the fact that, well, the, the filmmaker, his background is in architecture, that's why he's mm -hmm. focused on the space, and he's, I think, is really clever how he's just um, sort of showing us this, like, very yeah. static uh, shots, of the space but not really saying much but then we mm. learn all about yeah it's, it was built by the nazis then you know they are um staying in these um hangars that were used for military planes and and and, and you are placing people there who are fleeing war mm -hmm. and it's just that lack of sensitivity you know like how this could trigger probably lots of traumatic memories to all of these people. And the yeah. fact that, you know, like we've seen images all over the media about refugee camps and looking horrible. And if you compare those images with this film, you could actually say, oh, they are okay, you know, like they are not freezing cold, they have uh, vaccines, they have lots of things, they have um, German lessons. But still, you know, I think I really like this scene in the film where it's like, three minutes and the lights go off one by one mm, and you yeah. see the lights going off yeah. um, on top of the cubicles that have become the bedrooms but it's it looks like really like a factory or it doesn't look like a home you know you never like no yeah. one could ever switch off the the light for you that way so it's kind yeah. of a reminder very subtle that this is really not a home even yeah. it has a lot of things, you know, compared to other refugee camps, is quite good. Mm. But still, the way mm. where it is, and and um, I also like another scene where there's all of these. They are putting these um, cubicles, sorry, these porta cabins outside, which are going to give them more privacy. But again, it's like, why don't you just put them in homes in the city, especially when we know how expensive these yeah. cabins are. Absolutely. Um, and there's also that scene when, um, where there is a husband and a wife checking with, uh, I think, the, like the caseworker or somebody who's in charge, why can we not install um, doors and uh, locks? Because it's like we, we deserve some privacy. And then the interpreter went like, um, but there are curtains and they're uh, um, fireproof. So they're there for your safety. I mean, it is all appreciated, but as you ladies uh, were saying, there is a certain level of sen sensitivity that needs to be considered. Um, Ibrahim says in one, one, of his, um, uh, one of his scenes that he was mostly terrified when they were just driven to the airport without ev even being told what's going to happen. They just threw, uh, saw the um, airplane, the, the old airplanes. I think that there are more than one. They were just parked there, so they thought they're going to be just put on them and just, you know, get deported. He was just saying, I mean, 
and also because the movie or the documentary was all in Arabic, Ibrahim was talking about himself. So I was able to just listen to it because this is my mother tongue. Um, the way he explained it, the way he described it, he was just terrified, very, very scared. And um, they were just put in the dark. They were not told anything, but again, always asked to be appreciative, which is uh, quite understandable when you compare it to, um, when you compare the airport to, you know, um, other camps around the world. But that is not to say um, those individuals don't deserve more or, um, you know, should be just satisfied with that. Absolutely, yeah. And also we see the same thing repeating with the, um, the, the man from the Iraq. Russian. Oh, uh, yeah. there's, there's no one to translate for him and he's obviously yeah. looking very confused and he doesn't know what's happening next day and they keep saying tomorrow, tomorrow, but it's like he doesn't yeah. understand the language. And so, yeah, you, you see that repeating all over again. Because mm -hmm. probably is run by volunteers and they don't have enough resources and yeah, I think when I've been looking at films on this topic and I guess Alexandra for you as well as a programmer of Gramnet and Document Human Rights with festivals, really being uh, attentive to that as well the process not just the product because the film can be amazing aesthetically and in terms of content but then the process could completely be unethical. And then your position as a programmer there is to kind of avoid that as well. You want to, uh, in, in as much as you can, because obviously it's gonna be very difficult to know everything about the process, but as much as you can to, to inform yourself, to learn about the process when it's something so delicate as this, and when it's something that we are seeing this week with the media coverage where refugees are just, being broadcasted as if as if they were animals really in a zoo and and it's just really is 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 disgraceful and uh, i've seen some films that are kind of the same narrative so um i think it's also very important to 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 look at who's producing the film as well and and all of that political connections of where the money comes from what type of images we want to show and uh, there's this documentary by IYY Human Flow that I think is in Netflix and it's been criticized because it kind of shows these aerial images and shows these crowds of people. But then he himself was a refugee. So where do you position yourself? And so I think it's interesting. And since we, I just realized the time, um, but we have a few questions from the audience and one of them actually is linked to this one, which is um, someone is asking if you can recommend um, any other documentaries that you think give a valid representation of the refugee experience. So I'm, I'm picking these questions is because we are talking about this, um, the politics of, of, of the representation of vulnerable people on the screen. So if, if any of you have any recommendations, just, just shout out, I'll write a note as well. And also where we can see them, if you know, if, if they are on any platform. Or... Well, I have some quick recommendations of films and also to add, add to this, uh, that yeah, definitely in programming, at least with Document and Gramnet, we're always looking at yeah, who's made the film, uh, try to, try to avoid really those 
films that are, you know, where you have the director just kind of uh, coming into, you know, a refugee camp or somewhere and just filming for a month and then leaving and making a film and winning awards at festivals. That's definitely not, you know, I, I don't see that as really valuable or useful in terms of programming. And we're, it's definitely where you see that the stories are coming from, you know, people with lived experience or with people who have this kind of shared knowledge of, you know, um, of, of, the, the people that they are filming, uh, that's really, and also, I guess there is a degree of voyeurism in documentary always when you have, you know, um, filming people, especially in vulnerable situations, and there's a fine line um, of, you know, becoming too uh, voyeuristic and looking into this, into topics, stories, uh, into the lives of people, and what is really, what's the purpose of that, so I think, yeah, with um, programming films or watching films uh, or watching the news even, it's always important to think about, you know, what, what is, why are we seeing what are we seeing? What is the purpose of that? How is it contextualized and discussed? Because I think that's key. Um, is it made with the consent of people involved? I think that's always also very important. And some of the news reporting on this topic really shows really bad practices in this area um, and I think yeah some of the films that uh, really stuck with me in terms of programming and in what we've shown are those films that really where you know the the subject has agency uh, where the protagonist has agency and you feel like there's a genuine desire to 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 speak about these things rather than just be you know shown by someone else um, and I think one of the films that I'd like to recommend and that I know for sure that is available is called uh, Revenir to Return. And that's a documentary that we are showing. It, it won the award, uh, the jury award that document in 2018. And it's currently available on YouTube for free. Um, and it's also on our website. Um, and we'll have actually a masterclass, a conversation with the filmmakers because there are two filmmakers. Uh, one of them is uh, the refugee who took the journey back to where he immigrated from uh, and the other one is the filmmaker who also helped out in making the film you know a film for cinema so it's a really interesting process and some really interesting conversations there around representation that I would recommend and some other films that have shown that document in the past for instance are Nowhere to Hide um, that's a really interesting film uh, where you know, the protagonist who is uh, a nurse in Iraq really becomes the filmmaker as well. And he uh, basically shoots uh, around uh, his work and his family and his journey uh, throughout. I think it's quite a long, um, it took quite a long time to make that film. And that's also really interesting. And Flotel Europa, uh, this is the other one I'd mentioned because it, it was really interesting because it shows again, life of, uh, lives of refugees uh, in cities, in big cities, and how they are stuck in one place. Because this one, this film looks at refugees from former Yugoslavia who fled to um, Denmark, and they're living in this huge boat in, in Copenhagen uh, for years. And the film is basically made of uh, cameras of, of people, so it's very amateur, but they're, you know, just the people on the boat who are shooting themselves, filming their daily lives, and the film basically puts together all of that material 
into a film with very interesting stories that is very genuine, comes from the filmmaker and also from the people that he met there while on the boat. So I think these are some of the films uh, that I can remember now. I don't know about these other, the last two ones, how available they are, but... Um, can you I say the, the title of the last one? I didn't catch it. It's Hotel Europa. It's like hotel, oh, but it's Hotel. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I really wanted to thank you for your time, for your knowledge, which is great, just to, to, to listen to you and learn so much about all of these different aspects. And um, yeah, I just wanted to wish you the best of luck, uh, Violet, with your naturalization process and your studies. And thank you. Obviously, to use Vasik with your with your work with your you know with with your cultural work at the Scottish Refugee Council and the same to you Alexandra Colta we'll be looking forward to the program that you put um, this uh, autumn and um, yes um, thank you so much again for for participating and it's been a pleasure to talk to thank you. you. every month we take a kind of moment to um, recommend short films that are online um, and uh, Jim you had a couple recommendations to look at uh, that you can currently check out yep um, so I'm not going to time myself for the minute this time because I'm very disappointed I was going to say I'm trying to ignore that timing thing <laughs> yeah I, I, I know you're trying to ignore it <laughs> I, I mean, it's Carissa's call. She suggested it. We'll see. But I'm gonna. I'm, I am going to ignore it on this occasion because uh, I've not actually had a chance to watch the shorts I'm about to recommend. But I think they'd probably be interesting for folks to check out, and I'll be looking to do so. Um, on BFI Player, there are a small selection of uh, short and one kind of medium length, actually, uh, films from Mark Jenkin who is the director of Bait, which I'm pretty sure we reviewed on the show back when it came out, or we certainly, we had the interview with Mark Jenkin, and that film, uh, which is, you know, done in a very, very unique style, uh, and made some waves on the festival circuit, and did very well when it actually did come out on release. BFI player hosting that film, and also uh, a bunch of Mark Jenkins' shorts kind of filmed in a, a similar sort of style. So I think that would be worth checking out. Um, also, you need a, a BFI player subscription to watch it, but I think if you want to test that out, that would probably be quite a good shout for a cinema lover anyway. The Japan 2020 season that we all picked films from uh, a couple of shows ago, that's still going on, so you'd still be able to see that. So I think that would be my recommendation for this month, would be check out some, some more of Mark Jenkins' work on BFI Player. Yeah, I'd be curious if the um, film Vertical Shapes in a Horizontal Landscape is on there because I saw that at the We Are One Festival, at the um, film festival. It was part of a shorts film program that I think was focusing on, you know, up and coming real like legends. And obviously Mark, Mark Jenkins is one of those. Um, so that was a really good film. Again, a shot, I think, on 8mm, very similar in the style that he did with Bait. Um, and it, I quite enjoyed that, so um, so I'll check it out because I'm still a member of BFI Player Online, and um, I think there's a thing with Amazon Prime too. It's it's not it's 
they have like a 30 day deal with that or something like so you can try it out yeah, for 30 you days can get, you can get it through your prime subscription so that's 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 also a good deal um i, I just want to plug um the glasgow short film festival so there's quite a lot of uh you know, interesting films and different kinds of programs and stuff like that. So Matchbox Cine Club has a, a strand of Obayashi films. And um, I saw that uh, there's a UK premiere of um, a new film by Duncan Coles, who we know. Um, it's a local filmmaker and what, you know, came up through the SDI and, and whatnot. Um, there's a collaboration with a Shortwaves Festival in Poland. Um, so there's just, um, there's, there's just a, a ton of stuff out there right now and it's all available at their website through their hub. And, um, you know, they had a, a really incredible, um, program that kind of brought together independent exhibitors, um, last month called dive in. And so that was, that was a really interesting project. And so they really know how to run, um, virtual festivals now and, uh, and short film programs. And I've, I've really enjoyed what I've seen so far. So this week, um, we you know i'll be checking out those films and i recommend you do as well yep sounds good all right well that is it for our august edition um next month um we will be back and we'll probably be talking a lot about um well we'll hopefully i'll be talking a lot about the plans for uh cinescapes um just another plug for you to check out cinescapes.co.uk where you can see where our crowdfunding is um doing we're you know we're trying to bring a hyper local experience i'm kind of obsessed with this word hyper local <laughs> right now it's like it's in my head all the time but yeah i mean the idea of kind of this hybrid festival which i think would be really you know a, a cool idea where you can you know people can watch things in a very small group but then also watch it online and and how that experience kind of mixes together and and i have to also plug like cinema addicts about to do something very similar uh, with their new programs um they're about to have their 10th anniversary so a plug out to them we we interviewed them last year um and they're really cool um cinema group film society in in edinburgh um and beyond but uh they're also trying that they're going to, they're they're going to be doing some in-person events that are you know in in loriston hall which is a really big space and they're 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 you know mo you know monitoring social distancing and all the things they need to to be you know to be you know compliant and you know be safe for everybody but they're also going to offer the same films online and i think that's kind of exciting so if you are feeling like you can't make it there or you don't live in Edinburgh or whatnot, then you have that opportunity to to watch them online. But if you want to be, have that cinematic experience or just that kind of collective fun experience of being in a community, because that's not in a cinema, but it's a, you know, it's more of a pop-up event, which is equally exciting. Um, you know, that that's the kind of thing I, I think we all hopefully will be exploring and that's that's what we hope to so um stay tuned please check all of the stuff out that we've we've suggested and uh we look forward to seeing you um next month